What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Victory is something that I'm sure all of us enjoy when we play games. I don't know anyone who plays to lose. Everybody likes to win. And when we watch our sports teams that we support, we, we want to see them be uh, victorious. But victory isn't just something we want in games. It's also something we want in life. Uh, in our jobs, we want victory. We, we seek to, you know, get promotions and improve. And, um, you know, in our families, we want to be good spouses and good parents and raise good kids. But, you know, as Christians, the thing that we should desire victory the most in is in our Christian life, in our relationship with God, or as we've been looking at here in uh, chapters 6, 7, 8, in, in the sanctification process, in this process of being set apart from sin and set apart to God to become more like Jesus Christ, we should want to be victorious in that process. You know, oftentimes I think we come to a place where you know, maybe we don't wonder, is victory possible? Because we read things like we're doing here and we say, okay, well, the Bible says it, but it's more personal. We ask the question, is victory possible for me? I might believe it's possible for people in ministry and pastors, and, and I might believe it's possible for these great apostles and missionaries like Paul, but is victory in the Christian life possible for me. And then we start looking at our own struggles and our own sins and oftentimes these sins that are continual in our life. And, and we start to, to ponder, you know, is it possible for me? And then we look at what we're up against and, you know, the things that are coming against us and attacking us and the temptations that we face. And we oftentimes struggle with the concept that I can be victorious in the Christian life, that I can have victory over my sin, that I can be victorious in obeying God and becoming more like Jesus. In the beginning of chapter 8, Paul made very clear, in order to have victory in the Christian life, one thing is essential, and that is a complete reliance upon the Holy Spirit. We have to rely on the Holy Spirit and not on ourselves if we want to be victorious in the Christian life. But as Paul finishes this chapter here uh, we're going to look at this morning. He's going to give us several encouraging things to convince us that victory is possible for every Christian. Not just those in ministry or those that we read about in the Bible, but each one of us have the same resources. Each one of us have the same things available to us to make victory possible. So if you've ever been struggling to have victory in your own life, or if you've wondered, you know, is it really possible for me? What we're going to look at this morning should be of great encouragement to you. Paul's going to share with us six different reasons why victory in the Christian life is possible 
for you and for me. And this latter part of chapter 8 of Romans is really, for me, one of the most encouraging sections in the Bible. It has some wonderful, wonderful uh, passages of encouragement for us. And so let's see what we can take from this this morning. The first reason Paul gives us for why victory in the Christian life is possible is in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, a very commonly quoted verse. It says this, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. You know, one of the reasons that we often struggle with believing that we can have victory in the Christian life, we can have victory over sin, victory to obey God, is because of difficult situations that we often find ourselves in. I know that most of the time that I have in my Christian life struggled with believing I can be victorious have come in times of difficulty, temptation, loss, hardship, trial. You know, when everything's going good, you know, when family is going good, when the job's going good, when life is going well, when things just seem to all be working out right, it's in those times that we think, oh yeah, victory is possible. I can live the Christian life. I can be obedient to God. I can overcome sin in my life. We have this optimism because life isn't throwing anything difficult at that moment, but all of a sudden we encounter trials or loss or hardship or temptation and then all of a sudden our view of victory oftentimes changes. We now go from this optimism to this pessimism. We think before, yeah, I can do it now. I don't know if it's even possible for me because of all the difficulties that I'm facing. Paul wants us to know something very important about the difficulties, temptation, and loss that we go through. He tells us this, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and who are the called according to His purpose. Notice that Paul starts off here saying, we know. Paul's including himself and those he's writing to, the readers there in Rome. Hey, we know something, that they were aware of something. All things work together for good. And this is something that as believers, we need to know as well. If you don't know this truth, this is one of the most important truths to understand in our Christian life. We need to know that all things work together for good. Now, notice what Paul says here. He says, all things work together for good. That, that's our struggle because we can believe that some things work together for good. And we might even get to the point where we believe most things work together for good. But there are certain things that we look at in our life and we think no way any good could come from that. And we have to understand this truth that Paul says, no, all things work together for good. Even horrible situations, even the great difficulty, even the loss that we have experienced, even our own sinful failures that we have done, God can work together for good. Notice it doesn't just say God is able to do this, but that he actually does it. God takes all things and he works them together for good. The promise, notice though, is not for everybody. It's not everybody has this happening in their life. Everybody in the world, God is going to take what happens for them and he's going to work it for good. No, it's only for a specific group. It's for those who love God and who are the called according to his purpose. 
know, this is only for believers in Jesus Christ. This is one of the wonderful privileges that we have as we place our faith in Jesus. We've seen so many wonderful privileges. This is another one. All things in our life, God will work together for good. Now, I think it's important to note two things that are not promised in this verse. First, we're not told that all things work together for good in the timing that we want. You see, we have a tendency to want the good right away. You know, we live in a culture that we don't like to wait. We don't want to be patient. We want to see good. We see bad in situations that are hard. And right away, where's the good? God, show it to me right now. I need to see it right now. And so notice it doesn't tell us that in our timing, this good is going to be revealed. Ray Pritchard said this, Our danger is that we judge the end by the beginning. Or to be more exact, that we judge what we cannot see, but what we can see. That is, when tragedy strikes, if we can't see a purpose, we assume there isn't one. But the very opposite is true. We ought to judge the beginning by the end. You know, in the midst of a trial, it's oftentimes very hard for us to see the good in it. And you've probably experienced like I have, usually the only time that you actually really see the good is when you've come out the other side. You know, the trial's finished, God's gotten you through it, and you look back upon it, and all of a sudden you are now able to see the end and the beginning. And you see all that God has done, and you see the good that he's brought out of it. But in the midst of it, that's when we want to see the good. That's the timing that we desire. Right now, while I'm going through this, Lord, show me the good that's here. And sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes it's not until maybe even years later that we look back and see what God has done. But we need to be confident He is working. So the first thing to note that we're not told is that all things work together for good in our timing. The second thing to note is that we're not told all things work together for the good that we want. God will bring good. That's what he promises. But so often we read that and then we have our own thought as to what that means. Okay, well, if you're going to bring good, that means you're going to bring this, this, and this good that I want. So if you don't do that, then you haven't been faithful to your word. No, he says he will bring good, but it doesn't mean he will bring necessarily the good that you're hoping for or desiring or wanting in that particular situation. You know, when I was 13 years old, my grandmother was sick with cancer, and the good that I wanted was for her to be healed, and the timing that I wanted was right then. You know, and, and I prayed, and I waited, and God did not answer my request the way I wanted. He didn't bring the good in the way that I thought, in the timing that I thought. My grandmother passed away. And I'm thinking, Lord, what are you doing, God? You know, why are you allowing her to die? The good you were supposed to do in this hard situation was to heal her. But one thing that years later I kind of realized was, hey, my grandmother's biggest prayer was that the kids that she had that didn't know Christ would come to know him. And it took years, but each one of them said it was her death that ultimately drew them back to the Lord. Uh, And so God used her death to save her kids. But, you know, when I was looking at it in the media, I wanted to see the good as the healing, the good as the now. And God said, no, I'm going to do something different. But I am going to bring good out of this. It's just not going to be your good, and it's not going to be in your timing. And I'm sure that all of us have been through experiences where we've realized that the good hasn't come in the timing that we want, and it was different than we wanted. But God doesn't promise those things. He promises, I will bring good. And ultimately, the good that he determines is best from that situation. Now, the reason I think it's important for us to note those things is because sometimes we we conclude God isn't doing good. 
because he's not doing it in our timing, because he's not doing it the way we said or the way we wanted. And then we say, well, well God, you're, you're not doing good in this. Well, no, that's not what his word tells us. It says he will bring good out of all things. We need to trust that promise to be true. Because in those difficult times, those hardships, those thoughts that we have that no good could ever come from this, we need to believe that, hey, that goes against what the Word of God says. Yes, good can, and not only can, but will, according to this passage, come from this horrible situation. You know, I'm sure that you have and I have felt many times that no good would come from this, but ultimately what I'm doing is placing my limitation on God because I can't see how good could come. I know there's nothing that I could do to make good come from that situation. And so I'm saying, okay, God, well, surely then you couldn't either. If I can't make good come from this, then you can't make good from this and there won't be good from this. Instead of realizing, no, God is all powerful. God is capable of bringing good out of any horrible situations. And so we often limit God with our own limitations. And, you know, we need to realize this truth because it's something that really helps us as we seek to be victorious in the Christian life. I don't know if you're anything like me, but when you're suffering with difficulty or tragedy or, or loss, you know, we have a tendency, if we don't think anything good's going to come out of the circumstances we're in, just to kind of give up. You know, what's the point anymore? Why am I even trying to live for God in this? I mean, nothing's good's going to happen. God's not going to do anything. He's not going to, you know, whatever our thought process is. And then we have this, you know, Oftentimes, this kind of, well, I'm done. I'm going to give up. I'm not going to continue to seek to be victorious in my Christian life. I'm not going to rely upon the Holy Spirit within this. I have found, and I'm sure you have as well, one of the good things that God does for us in bad situations is he brings us through them. And as he brings us through them, he changes us in the process. He deepens our relationship with him. He helps us to grow more spiritually. It says, you know, oh, Lord, the good I want is for you to get me out of this situation. He says, well, actually, the good I want is to bring you through this situation so I can transform you to be more like me. John MacArthur wrote this about all things working together for good. All things is utterly comprehensive, having no qualifications or limits. Neither this verse nor its context allows for restrictions or conditions all things is inclusive in the fullest possible sense. Paul is not saying that God prevents his children from experiencing things that can harm them. He is rather attesting that the Lord takes all that he allows to happen to his beloved children, even the worst things, and turns those things ultimately into blessings. No matter what our situation, our suffering, our persecution, our sinful failure, our pain, our lack of faith in those things, as well as in all other things, our Heavenly Father will work to produce our ultimate victory and blessing. The first reason why victory in the Christian life is possible is because God works all things for good in the lives of Christians. As believers, we should never conclude, never believe really the lie that nothing good can come from this difficult situation because it's not true. God will work all things together for good. The second reason Paul shares with us why victory in the Christian life is possible is verses 29 and 30. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, 
Whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. I love these verses because it paints a wonderful picture of the work of God from the beginning to the end of our Christian lives. And, you know, so often we look at how God is a part of the beginning process and understand it's all about him. But sometimes we lose the reality of how much involved he is in the present process, in the future process as well. And so Paul shares some great words with us that kind of show the the start all the way to the end of God's work. In us, he starts with this word foreknew that God foreknew us before we ever knew him, before we were ever even born. God knew us, and whom he foreknew, he also predestined. God's work continues. There's this knowledge of us, and then there's this predestination, this choosing of you and I. And notice that Paul specifically tells us what God predestined us to to be conformed to the image of his son. That's God's ultimate goal for us. As we've been looking at the sanctification process, what God wants to do in you and me is to conform us to the image of Jesus, to make us like Jesus. That is what he's chosen us to. That's his ultimate desire with us. But notice this process, these different words, this continuation of what God's doing because he is working that in us. And so whom he predestined, these he also called. And so God chooses, but he also calls us. It's him who calls you out of darkness into light. It's when we are lost that the Lord calls us and draws us to himself. And it's such a a wonderful thing that he does for us. And that work continues. Whom he called, these he also justified. As the Lord calls us, and we come to a place where we accept the calling, accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, accept what He's drawing us to, it's at that moment, as we've looked at so often, we place our faith in Jesus, now He justifies us, declares us as righteous, just as if we'd never sinned, this wonderful process that God does for us. But it continues, He says, Whom He justifies, these He also glorifies. God's work continues all the way to the glorification process. That is the time when we get new glorified bodies. No longer this body that's bound to our sinful flesh. We're going to be given new bodies that can live forever in eternity with God. We'll be going to glory, as we use that term, going to heaven to be with God for eternity. Henry Morris said this about these verses. Paul is saying that God is the author of our salvation and that from beginning to end. You know, something we need to understand is God started it all. His foreknowledge, his predestination, his calling. And he continues it. He justifies all the way to the end, the glorification, the new bodies, the eternity with him. He starts it, he continues it, and he completes the work. Paul shares the same truth in a different way. In Philippians 1.6, he says this, Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. I love that Paul starts with, you can be confident of something that God does. Since you know he started the work, you know it was him who did the starting of the work, you can be confident he's also going to finish what he started. 
He's not just going to start and then leave us and abandon us and say, well, it was nice, I got it going, and now you do it the rest yourself. No, he starts it, he continues it, and he completes it. And these are the terms that Paul is using. Hey, that foreknowledge to predestination, to calling, to justification, to glorification, God starts, he continues, and he completes the work that he started in each one of us. And that should bring us confidence that, hey, I'm not in this alone. God's with me through the whole process. And as I'm seeking to live for him, as I'm seeking to be victorious in this Christian life, I need to know he's going to complete this. He's here. He's helping. He's wanting to bring me to that place of glorification. So the second reason why victory in the Christian life is possible is God is always working in us to complete the work he started. God's not going to give up on you even when you fail. Even when you fail time and time again, he's always with us to complete what he started in us. The third reason Paul shares with us why victory in the Christian life is possible is in verse 31. It says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Another wonderful, wonderful verse. You know, one of the reasons we often struggle with believing that we can be victorious in the Christian life is we wonder, will God give us what we need to do it? You know, we start the Christian life with this lie that we believe that I don't need God. Oh, I can do this myself. I can be victorious in my own strength. I can handle this on my own. And we try. And we saw all of chapter 7 was Paul sharing about his struggle of trying in his own strength and his own power to be victorious in the Christian life. And it doesn't work. You finally come to a place where you're humbled and you recognize, you know what? I can't do it. In my strength and my power, I can't live the Christian life. I can't be victorious. I need God's help. That's a great place to be, but sometimes we wonder, will God give me what I need? I know I need him. I know I need his strength and his power. I know I need him to give me all I need to be victorious. But the question that we have sometimes is, will God do it? Will he give me what I need? You know, we have so many things that come against us. We have the world, we have the flesh, we have the devil. And oftentimes we say, you know what? I can't be victorious because of what's coming against me. I mean, look at it. Look at how you know, difficult the world is. Look at how big the devil is. Look at how all these struggles come. Well, Paul wants us to understand this. When we look at what's against us, we must remember who is for us. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, is there anything that has power enough to be against us? When we place our faith in Jesus, we have the all-powerful God on our side. And we need to realize there's nothing too big for him. There's nothing that's stronger than him. There's nothing that can overpower him, you know, which means that nothing that comes against us can defeat us when God is for us. You know, when I think of this truth, David and Goliath come to mind. Here's this 10-foot giant that's striking fear into all of the Israelite soldiers, and for good reason. They realize, if I go out and fight this guy, you know, he'll demolish me. Look at him, he's huge. But David sees in a very different perspective. 
He's fine with going and fighting this giant, not because he thinks, well, I'm strong enough and tough enough. He says, well, I realize an important truth. If God is for me, then who can be against me? You know, this giant can't take me down because I got something much stronger on my side, much bigger, much more powerful with me. I'm not scared of this giant. When God is with me, he will give me victory. On my high school football team, we had the best running back in the state. He was about 250 pounds of muscle, and he was the fastest guy on our team. And we didn't really have that great of a team, but we won every game because all we had to do is give him the ball, and he'd give us almost 10 yards every single carry because it took like 10 guys to bring him down. He was huge, he was strong, and he was fast. And you know what? We had all these teams that beforehand were so great. Oh, we're coming up against them this year. And we would just think, we're winning. All we got to do is to give it to Daryl. I mean, he's just going to run down the middle and no one's going to stop him. And, you know, because we had him on our team, we always thought victory was ours and it ended up being victory was ours. We won every game, not because any of us were that great, but because he was so good. You and I have the all-powerful creator of heaven and earth. He's on our team. And because of that, victory is always possible for us. We can overcome anything that comes against us. I want to encourage you to personalize this verse and put your name where it says us. For me, it would say, if God is for Matthew, who can be against Matthew? And realize that truth for yourself. If God's for you, which the Bible says, if you've accepted Christ, he is, then who or what can be against you in such a way that would defeat you? Nothing. Because you have God on your side. You know, this is so important for us to first believe. We have to accept that it's true, but sometimes that's all we do. It's just intellectual. We don't have to apply it in our life. If I really believe it, then it should change the way in which I live. I should really recognize victory is possible as I'm fighting against all these different things that are coming against me on a daily basis. I can win that battle because of who is with me and gives me strength. The third reason why victory in the Christian life is possible is because God is for us, which enables us to have victory over anything that is against us. Now, remember, as we saw in the beginning of chapter eight, we must rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit for this to happen. Don't just think, well, yeah, I'm strong enough to defeat the things that come against me. No, no, we're not strong enough in ourselves. That's the whole point. In our own strength, we'd get demolished by Satan and the world and all the things that come Our strength isn't in us. Our strength is in the power of God who's always with us. And when we rely upon him, that's when we truly become strong. The fourth reason Paul shares with us why victory in the Christian life is possible is in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? As I mentioned a little bit ago, one of our struggles is believing that God will actually give to us the victory, the things that we need for victory. And Paul shares with us something very important. As we're contemplating whether in the present or the future God will give us what we need, we need to look to the past and see what he's already given to us. Because what God has given to us in the past should make us confident that he's going to give me everything I need in the present. He'll give me everything I need in the future because what he's given me already proves it to me. 
This is the point that Paul wants us to understand. Since God has already given us his son, which is most valuable, which is most important, shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Since God gave us his best, it should make us confident there's nothing he's now holding back from us. If God gave us his best when we were his enemy, don't you think he's going to give us everything else we need now that we are his children? If you were kidnapped and your kidnapper called me and told me if I wanted to see you alive and unharmed again, I would have to give them my family for them to kill. I'd have to give them Jenny and Scarlett and Eden. Now, if I was willing to give up my family to save your life, would you ever think that I would hold something back from you? I would hope not. Because the fact that I gave to you what's most precious to me should reveal, hey, if I'm willing to give you that, then anything else I'm willing to give you as well. Because I gave you the most valuable, so that should show you that all the rest of the stuff that's nothing in comparison, I'll surely give to you as well. That's what Paul is wanting us to understand. Since God gave to us the most precious thing to him, his son, we need to be confident he's not holding anything back. Everything else we need, he will give to us. Ray Steadman said this about what God has given to us. He who has already given us the best, the greatest, the dearest, the most precious thing he has, and who did so while we were sinners, while we were enemies, while we were helpless, will he not also give us some of these trivial, piddling little things that we need? If someone thinks enough of you to give you a costly, brilliant, beautiful, flawless diamond, do you think he will object when you ask him for the box that goes with it? If a mother will give you a baby, do you think she'll object if they ask to take his clothes too? And if God has given us his only son already, do you really think God's going to withhold anything else that we need? Paul's argument is unanswerable. Of course he won't. We can say with David in the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. God is not holding back anything that we need. And so as you face difficulty, as you face hardship, as you face temptation and you start wondering, can I be victorious in this temptation? Will God give me what I need to overcome it? The answer is yes. He's going to give you everything. Give me everything that we need in this life to live for him. The fourth reason why victory in the Christian life is possible is because God freely gives us all things that we need to live a victorious Christian life. So the next time you're wondering if God will give you what you need to be victorious in the present or in the future, remember the past. Remember the cross. Remember what he's already given, the best, the greatest, and realize, hey, if he's already given that, he's not going to withhold anything else that you need. The fifth reason Paul shares with us why victory in the Christian life is possible is in verse 33 and 34. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Another reason we can be victorious as Christians is for what Jesus did for us in the past, and what also he does for us in the present. Paul poses a couple of questions and answers to remind us of what Jesus has done for us in the past. The first question and answer is this. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God 
who justifies. You see, God has justified us. He's declared us as not guilty, just as if we never sinned, because Jesus took that guilt when he died on the cross for us. So you and I are secure from every charge against us. If we're declared not guilty by the highest judge in the world, in the earth, in the universe, then who is there to condemn us? Who is there to try to judge us? We are secure from all condemnation because Jesus died for our sin, which was the thing that condemned us. We looked at this wonderful truth at the beginning of chapter 8 where Paul shares with us there is there now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And since we already looked at that in detail, I want to look at the present thing that we're told here of what Jesus does. Yes, the past, he justifies, he makes it possible for us to no longer be condemned. But you know what? Look at what we're told here that he does in the present. Paul tells us that Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. Right now, Jesus is interceding for you and for me on behalf of us to God the Father. Hebrews 7.25 tells us this, Therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I love that terminology. Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. You know, Jesus died on the cross he rose from the dead, and then he ascended back to heaven. And I think sometimes we just kind of think like he's chilling out in the throne. He's just waiting until he returns. He's not really doing anything anymore. No, he, he's very active. And one of the things he's actively doing is interceding for you and for me. Jesus told Peter, Satan desires to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And he prays a specific thing, and he, he hopes and prays for something that your faith may not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Jesus wasn't praying that Peter wouldn't deny him, because he says, you're going to deny me three times. He's saying, this is what I prayed. Satan's going to sift you. I pray that in the midst of what you do, your faith wouldn't fail. I pray that you would then return to me, and then strengthen your brethren. And, and that's exactly what we see. After Peter's denial... His faith doesn't fail. Judas's faith fails. Judas goes and hangs himself. But Peter's faith is still comes, returns to the Lord. And then we see him strengthening his brother. So Jesus's prayer for Peter was answered. And, you know, we hopefully understand prayer is important. Prayer is powerful. The prayer of other people for us is needed. But I mean, imagine if you're going to have anybody pray for you. So often people will come to me and be like, Pastor, I know you pray, so will you pray for me? Because I'm not going to ask so-and-so because I know they're not going to do it. I mean, uh, or, or maybe they think, well, since you're a pastor, your prayer is you know, more effective, which isn't true. But um, you know, the reality is all of us have the same access to God, and so all of our prayers can be just as effective. But if you're going to ask anybody to pray for you, the best person possible would be Jesus Christ. And so what a wonderful, wonderful thing that we see that something he's doing for you and something he's doing for me is interceding for us so the fifth reason why victory in the Christian life is possible is because Jesus lives to make intercession for us. Jesus wants you to be victorious in the Christian life. He desires you to overcome sin. He desires you to obey him. He desires you to become more like him. That's his heart. That's his desire 
That's what he's ultimately praying for. That's one of the things God wants to do. As we already noted, he predestined us to conform us to the image of his son. That's his heart's desire for us. The sixth and final reason Paul shares with us why victory in the Christian life is possible is in verses 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sakes we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When it comes to living a victorious Christian life, one of the things that we need is proper motivation. You see, in the world that we live in, there's a lot of things trying to motivate us to live for the world, to live for the devil, to live for our own sinful flesh. A lot of things want us to live for what God doesn't want us to live for. And so we need a motivation. We need, what is motivating us ultimately to seek to be victorious in our Christian life? Because we can conclude, yes, you know, it's possible, but do I want to do it? Yeah, that's so often the struggle that we have is, is, do I have the motivation, the desire? And, and what is it that should be driving that? What is it that should be motivating us to do this? Well, in these final verses, Paul shares with us really a main thing that should motivate us, and that's the love of God for us. In these verses, Paul gives us a wonderful truth about God's love and also a good challenge concerning God's love. Let's start with the wonderful truth. The truth that Paul wants us to understand is that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Notice the list he gives. Who shall separate us from the love of God? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. Paul's throwing out the worst things that life could throw at us. All these things come. Can any of this separate us from the love of God? If you're in tribulation or distress, if you're under persecution, going through famine, nakedness, peril or sword, death, will any of that separate you from God's love? Paul says, no. But not only things in this life, but he also is going to reveal that the forces of the unseen world also can't separate us from God's love. For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's list here is quite exhaustive. He wants us to realize that nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from the love of God. You know, this is so important to understand because Satan surely does not want you and I to believe this. The Bible says that Satan is the father of lies, and this is one of his lies that he is very successful in doing. It's a lie that says, God doesn't love you. And usually the lie comes like this. Do you think God loves you after what you just did? You just did it again and again. Do you really think he still loves you? God doesn't love you. 
Oh, you really think God loves you as you go through this trial, as you go through this suffering, as you go through this loss, as you go through this hardship? If he really loved you, why would he allow that? There's this lie that he loves to bring. God doesn't love you. Well, when you hear that lie, remember two things. First, the cross. The cross is the greatest demonstration of God's love. Jesus' death for us is the greatest demonstration that God does love us. And remember this verse, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not your failures, not difficulties, not distress, not hardship. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. So the truth that Paul wants to share with us is nothing's going to separate us from God's love. But there's also a challenge. Notice what he says in verse 36 and 37. As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I love that term that he uses. We are more than conquerors. How? Through him who loved us. The love of God is the thing that brings us to this place where we are more than conquerors. It's that thing that ultimately should motivate us and empower us to do what God calls us to do. Paul gives a similar challenge in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. It says this, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And if he died for all, then those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Paul says, you know what? The thing that should compel us to live for God, the thing that should compel us to live the victorious Christian life is the love of God. The fact that he sacrificed himself for us, the fact that he loves us that much, that should ultimately motivate us. That should compel us. That should be the thing that moves us forward and saying, you know what? I really do want to be victorious in my Christian life. I really do want to overcome sin. I really do want to be obedient and more like Jesus because I want to be like the one who loves me so much. And that's what motivated Paul. Hey, the reason he was willing to go through all that suffering, the reason he was willing to go through all the difficulty and all the different missionary journeys was ultimately the love that God has for me has motivated me to live for him and die for him. He gave his life for me. I should give my life for him. That was Paul's mindset, and it makes perfect sense. God loved you enough to sacrifice himself for you. Do we love him enough to do the same? F.B. Meyer said this about God's love for us. Oh, blessed love that comes down to us from the heart of Jesus, the essence of the eternal love of God. Nothing can ever staunch, exhaust, or intercept it. It is not our love to him, but his love to us. And since nothing can separate us from the love of God, he will go on loving us forever and pouring into us the entire fullness of his life and glory. Whatever our difficulties, whatever our weaknesses and infirmity, we shall be kept steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, gaining by our losses, succeeding by our failures, triumphing in our defeats, and even more than conquerors through him that loved us. God's love for you, God's love for me. We, Jesus says, remember his sacrifice. And I think there's a lot of purposes for that. Obviously, he wants us to remember what he's done, never forget the love that he showed. But, but that love should do something. It should motivate us. It should work in us. Of God, since you've sacrificed so much, since you love me so much, I want to respond by actually being victorious in the Christian life. 
Jesus says, if you love me, oh yeah, I love you, Jesus. Okay, good. Keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. That was his heart. Say, hey, if you love me, then do what I say. Be obedient to what I'm telling you. That's, that's how you can show me love. But that should be the motivation. Hey, God, you love me, and I want to respond in love towards you. And the best way for me to do it is to seek to be victorious in this Christian life, to overcome sin and obey you the way that you've told me to do. The sixth reason why victory in the Christian life is possible is because God's love for us makes us more than conquerors and nothing can separate us from it. As believers in Jesus, we can have victory over our sin. We can have victory when it comes to obedience to God. We can have victory when it comes to being like Jesus Christ. But that victory happens when we first rely upon the Holy Spirit, not ourselves. And that victory is possible because of these six wonderful things that Paul has shared with us. God works all things together for good. He's going to complete the work that he started. He is for us. So who can be against us? He gives us all we need. He intercedes for us. And his love for us makes us more than conquerors and nothing can separate us from it. So if you have been struggling to be victorious in your Christian life, or maybe you've been even wondering, is it even possible? Let these verses encourage you. Yes, it is possible. And God wants to bring victory to you. He wants to help you do that. And maybe the reason you haven't been victorious is because you haven't been following what we looked at the last couple of weeks of complete reliance on the Holy Spirit instead of yourself. But the reality is, it is possible. It is available. God wants that for each one of us. And so let that encourage you and let his love for you motivate you to seek to actually be victorious in the Christian life.